S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Episode 18 of Saturday Night Live, hosted by Raquel Welch, originally aired on April 24th, 1976. And it's me, Keith, and again, uh, as always, always, it's Matt. Hello, Matt. How are you doing this evening? Hey, pretty good. Always happy to be on Saturday night. And the Candace Bergen of our show, our first returning guest host, we have tonight uh, Chili's back. Hey, Chili, how are you doing? I'm doing great. As a huge Murphy Brown fan, I was probably the only six-year-old boy who loved Murphy Brown, so that's that's pretty high compliments I can get there. You'll take that one, eh? Absolutely. Uh, Raquel Welch is the host, but we've also got musical guest Phoebe Snow and uh, second musical guest John Sebastian. Raquel Welch was born in 1940, a model, actor, singer, dancer, born to a Bolivian father and an Irish mother. She was the old, not just a pretty face. Uh, it applied to her. She typically played stronger female characters rather than typical airheads. She was not the Marilyn Monroe type by any means. Oddly, by the time she was an actor, she was actually a working mother with two kids. Um, and she started modeling. Her first movie came out in 66. That was the same year she made 1 million BC, which has one of the world's most famous posters. It's her in the deerskin bikini. And most people will, if they don't know that one, they'll remember it from uh, Shawshank Redemption. She did uh, Bedazzled with uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Uh, she did a couple of Musketeer movies in 73 and 74. She also did Myra Breckenridge in 1970. Her last bit before the show was a film called The Wild Party with James Coco. Now, when she showed up for this show, she was inundated by the writers hitting her up with a lot of breast jokes, but she nixed 90% of them, including a bit about the, uh, it was a takeoff on the Hindenburg disaster where her breast exploded. That was Michael O'Donoghue's idea. A sci-fi parody called The Planet of the Enormous Hooters, which was Franken and Davis's idea. And one where a uh, one of the cameramen is a little too pervy with the camera and just keeps zooming in on her chest rather than her face. That was Chevy Chase's idea. After she refused to do these, the writers sort of branded her as uncooperative and just sent her off into a corner to work on her music with Paul Schaefer. So uh, what do you uh, gentlemen know about Raquel Welch? Really only the sex symbol status. I'm not like up with the movies. You know, I, I've hmm. seen that one of her with the loincloth. But uh, I mean, I was so young. I was young enough to think it was actually sexy. Uh, so that tells you how young I was. I don't remember it at all. So I, I don't really know a lot about her other than that she's a, a sexy actress from a previous era. So you're telling me they nixed, like she nixed 90% of the breast jokes that were in this episode? <laughs> was it originally a two-hour special? Because... <laughs> I don't know what else they like. They really gave her very little to work with other than the fact that, you know, she's obviously gorgeous. She has very big boobs. That's what they went with, which uh, like Matt said, I only knew her as being a sex symbol. I know her honestly more from the poster than I do from any of her acting. But I will say that this episode, I was pretty surprised. The little bits they did give her to work with, I was Pretty pleasantly surprised. I thought she was essentially the you know 1960s, 1970s equivalent of like a Kim Kardashian or a Pamela Anderson, but I was pretty impressed with what she did. And our musical guests tonight, first off, we have Phoebe Snow, who appeared on episode two, the Paul Simon episode. Between then and now, or between her last performance and this one, she'd actually given birth to a daughter. And 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, on which she sang back up, uh, had shot to number one. And her second album, Second Childhood, uh, eventually went gold. It had been released uh, in January of 76. So a lot going on in the life of Phoebe Snow at that point in time. The second musical guest, John Sebastian, had been lead singer of The Love and Spoonful and really the creative writing force as well. He grew up steeped in music. Uh, he formed The Love and Spoonful, which combined a lot of genres into one really neat sound. A lot of their songs are well-known, far more well-known than perhaps the name Love and Spoonful is. They have Daydream, Summer in the City, Darlin' Be Home Soon, Do You Believe in Magic. After the band broke up, uh, Sebastian continued as a solo artist. He was composing music for theater, and he had an, a memorable impromptu appearance at Woodstock. Now, in 1976, he was riding an unexpected wave when he wrote and performed the theme to Welcome Back, Cotter, and that became a huge mainstream hit. 
And at this time, he was also working as a session musician. So Phoebe Snow and John Sebastian, ringing any major bells there for you guys? Big zeros. Yeah, nothing here. I recognize the Welcome Back song, but you just told me all I will probably ever learn about John Sebastian. Yeah, John Sebastian later in his career wrote uh, the theme song to the Care Bears, Care Bear Countdown. And That's I will amazing. Link- we have a cold open here. It's Chevy Chase. He's at a podium to present an award for best performer by an actor in a political campaign. The envelope is handed to him. He opens it and it reads, get to the fall, Chevy. Chevy is annoyed that as a political satirist, he shouldn't be looked down as a clown that falls down for people. And the cards were supposed to contain the punchline. Chevy acts very petulant and waits for the proper card. A new one is handed to him and it says, don't stretch this out, Chevy, get to the fall. Chase is annoyed and he threatens to walk. He then does walk and storms off as he trips over some chairs and falls. The spotlight catches him on the cement floor, and he gives the live from New York. This one looked like another bad fall, uh, and I remember this clip was used a lot to advertise like the video releases and stuff like that. I thought it was pretty good. I thought they kept it fresh. Uh, I enjoyed it, and I like the Oscars are like the only award show that I actually enjoy, so I always love a good Oscar episode or parody. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. It did look pretty rough. But uh, I appreciate that they're, they're keeping these interesting, even though even if they have to go a little meta with them, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I didn't get the political jokes, but obviously that's more of a topical thing for that week. The fall looked like it hurt like hell, but otherwise pretty standard stuff. One thing I, I will note is that there's a bit of Oscar humor going on here, and yet the Oscars had aired about three or four weeks before. Um, so yeah, there was a technician strike going on and, uh, some episodes had to be rescheduled and moved around. So we then get to Raquel Welch's monologue. Welch comes out and she sings Superstar, which, which was written by Leon Russell and Bonnie Bramlett. Leon Russell will be one of the musical hosts in a coming episode. Welch does a good job singing. She's eventually joined by Joe Cocker. Uh, Belushi is Joe Cocker. And Cocker had originally sang a version of this too. Great impression, weird placement, but it, to me, Belushi's appearance saves the segment. Definitely agree. And uh, tough to sing anything that Karen Carpenter ever had her hands on. I'm a big Carpenter's guy, and she was just the best. So I'm thinking of her and listening to Raquel Welch sing this, and it doesn't work for me. Yeah, for me, uh, first of all, uh, Raquel Welch looked absolutely stunning, and I was. This is the first time where I kind of realized, like, oh, she's actually might have a bit more talent. She sounded great when singing. But, yeah, if if it wasn't for Belushi coming out, and I'm not the biggest Belushi fan, it would have just been a very oddly placed segment of her just singing. But also after what you mentioned about the writers finding her difficult, I don't blame her necessarily for focusing on singing so much this episode. And fuck them for that. Just to yeah. get that out of the way. Fuck them. Those fucking, these guys are getting paid and you get a host that's clearly very eager to do, you know, some, some interesting stuff. She seemed very enthused and you just shovel her shit. Fuck them. Indeed. We come to our first ad and it was number one where I was like, oh, I'm glad Chili's back with us for this one. It was Gilda (laughs) Radner and Garrett Morris reprising the roles as uh, the Alvarez's from the Jill Claiborne episode. And they're worried about their rats. Chevy comes in as the Pied Piper who asks, are your rodents getting the nutrients they need? And he's advertising Purino Rat Chow. And there's a great bit in here with rubber rats. I really like this. Gilda and Garrett were great. And this time I did notice the uh, the undershirts hanging in the background, Jill. I got so excited when they showed up. I wasn't sure if these were recurring characters or not. But as soon as they popped up, I actually, like, out loud went, oh, yes. <laughs> Because the first shot of the sketch was the wife beaters hanging up like in the Jill Clayburgh episode. Mm. And then Chevy coming in as a Pied Piper. And I actually like this a lot. This was one of my favorite advertisement parodies they did. Like, I, mm. I love the line, treat your pests like guests. I'll probably <laughs> use that if I ever have mice in the house. And even like the little toy rats were cute. It was a fun sketch. It was funny. And yeah, I've got nothing but good things to say about this one. I also enjoyed it. I thought those toy rats were hilarious. My biggest laugh came from the bowl saying cocky. (laughs) The the cockroach bowl? Yeah, cocky and lousy. Our next bit is the metric alphabet. And this one is, uh, the internet credits this one to Dan Aykroyd or Tom Schiller or both. The conversion to metric was going through in the States or, or actually wasn't going through. Keep working on that, U.S. Aykroyd demonstrates the new decabet. It's an alphabet with 10 letters. 
And he demonstrates the new way of pronouncing and writing the new letters. Two sentences that jumped out at me were, I caught a biggie fish, and honey, will you element open the door? Um, this was another great bit by Aykroyd. Probably not like Basimatic level, but this was uh, this was still very, very good. Uh, I will be the uh, contrarian here, I suppose. I really did not think this was very funny. I thought he was straining to get through the jokes. I didn't think the jokes were very funny. There needed to be something else for him to do here because uh, I thought these were flat. I'm going to be somewhere in between here. I thought it was another good demonstration of Aykroyd's skill like especially like verbally he must have wrote written this himself because i can't see somebody who doesn't have to perform this writing for somebody else to do it because i was very impressed by how Ackroyd was able to actually get some of the sounds out of his mouth the way they were they'd have to be done which is why i think it's something he must have done himself for him to perform because i can't see how a writer would say oh yeah somebody else be able to pronounce these words and I enjoyed the, the trash letters were all the letters at the end. The bit itself is nothing fantastic, but Aykroyd, I found, was really good. Scred and Plubus sneak into the studio. They meet up with uh, Raquel Welch. Plubus and Scred then offer to mate with her. Plubus grabs a breast. Actually, whoever was working the left hand of Plubus grabs her breast. She notes that they don't exist below the waist. Chevy comes out and tells the Muppets that they aren't on the show that week and they should go away. Chevy quickly changes from the chivalrous hero and tells her to relax and take her shirt off. I didn't like this. I assume that the Muppets for this episode were uh, puppeteered by the writers who initially offered her all of the boob jokes that she refused. And they're like, oh, well, you don't want to do the jokes, eh? Well, we'll just essentially come out and grope you as puppets. You know, I'm not a fan of the Muppets. <laughs> as soon as I saw it was the Muppets again, I thought, oh, for God's sakes, they're locked in the studio. Keith and Matt must have like gone back in time to written letters to get the Muppets written up. <laughs> but this is bad. And even though, you know, I definitely don't appreciate the, you know, how all they looked at Raquel Welsh for this episode was as a sex object. I, w- I won't lie. I did laugh at Chevy's delivery of uh, relax and uh, take your shirt off. If it was just that in the episode, it would have been funny because he's kind of playing, like I said, the chivalrous guy who becomes a lecherous creep. But then when every other joke in the episode is more or less about that, it does dampen some of it a bit. But yeah, fuck the Muppets. <laughs> it was awful. Fuck the Muppets. I, I also found Scred especially rapey when mm. he's like grinding into her and he's like, just relax, baby. <laughs> For fuck's sake, Scred. <laughs> so uh, I missed a Chiron there of a, a woman in the audience who is said to be Ruth Roman's niece. And Ruth Roman was an actor. I know her best from Strangers on a Train interesting bit she was a passenger on the andrea doria when it sank so we then go to phoebe snow snow uh sings all over from her album second childhood i think this is a really neat song i think she has a weird voice but it's really a good voice ahead of her time i still hear singers trying to mimic this or 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 sing this way what jumped out at me too is her background singers basically looked like a bunch of my dad's friends from the 70s and these old polaroids they were just a bunch of dudes with smiles singing along i i'm glad you did i thought it was really really bad she looks and dresses like grandma ryan for starters uh the backup singers and this is nothing to do with the music but i thought one of them was chris christopherson and the other one was orlando jones <laughs> but yeah i thought this was really bad her voice is certainly unique this is like no television presence here whatsoever she's taking cues from paul simon this guy is fucking, he's a black hole of charisma. I thought this was very, very bad TV. And I did not like the song, even a little. Well, I'll make it the trifecta of saying who I thought her background singers looked like. Um, I had Al Borland, Paul Schaefer, who I think may have actually been the real Paul Schaefer, the horror movie icon, The Candyman, and just some 70s creep playing the kibasa. Overall, like it was, if you're not going to have stage presence... And may, I get it, it's the 70s, but don't have backup singers who look so distracting that she could have been singing, she could have been Pavarotti singing the greatest song he's ever heard, but I would just be focused on the really creepy guys in the back. Her voice, definitely unique. She sounded okay, but the song, not really my cup of tea. So our next sketch is uh, the Claudine Langer Invitational, and this was written by Michael O'Donoghue. So Chevy Chase as Tom Tryman and Jane Curtin as Jessica Antler Dance, one of the best names I've heard ever, are commentators at a skiing race. And as men go down the moguls, there's a gunshot rings out and these fellas fall. 
and they announced that the person was accidentally shot by Claudine Langer. And then there's clips of ski jumpers to the sounds of uh, automatic rifle fire. How was the sketch to you guys? No good. I don't know why they found this funny. Like, am I missing? Maybe I'm not because I wasn't up with the topical humor and I don't know who this guy is that, that I wasn't getting it. But fuck, it sure wasn't funny. Yeah, it doesn't get much funnier once you know what the story is. Because, um, I mean, I don't know if you have a, if you are going to explain this, Keith, but who Claudine Langer is. So Claudine Langer was a singer and actor who had been married to Andy Williams. Andy and- Williams? <laughs> In March of 76, only about a month before this, she was arrested after her boyfriend, who was an Olympic skier named Vladimir Spider Sabich, was shot by Langer. Langer said it was an accident, and she was uh, just learning how to use the gun. He was teaching her how to use it. She was eventually convicted on negligent homicide and spent about a month in jail, and she got to pick the month. So that all this happens before the trial. This is Saturday Night Live making fun of a legitimate real-life tragedy. You were right, Julie. It's not funnier. No, I was sh- like, I was shocked to see, because doing the math and looking at the times once I looked up uh, Claudine's history and what this was about, I was like, holy shit, this must have been like, like the bodies must have still been warm, or the body must have still been warm at this point. Even the little bit of research I did afterwards, it's the Rolling Stones wrote a song about this incident three years later for an album they were going to do in 19, I guess, 1980 or so. And it was taken off then of the album for being too controversial. And that was three years after the fact, whereas this would have been so fresh. It's just, I don't know, I enjoy dark humor, but it seems like a bit of bad taste to be doing a five-minute sketch about shooting somebody shortly after somebody actually gets murdered. And I will say, though, the name Jessica Antler Dance, I agree, Keith, is one of the best names ever devised. Bad taste. It's almost like having the president on shortly after the fall of Saigon. (laughs) Yeah, this one made me mad. Bad taste, bad timing, and ultimately bad jokes. This wasn't one worth hanging your hat on. And uh, shortly after this, they get a cease and desist order. So our next bit is a Polaroid commercial. John Belushi introduces himself as Jane Curtin. Jane Curtin is therefore, by default, John Belushi. And they show three Polaroids of Jane taken by the uh, Polaroid camera. It's the Polaroid Deluxe XS70. And this is just like one that the uh, we'd seen on the two previous Candace Bergen episodes. And to give you the background on these ones, Candace Bergen was actually the spokesperson for Polaroid at the time. These Polaroid in-show ads were sort of offsetting the low amount of ad revenue that was coming in. But one thing the Polaroid was annoyed about is that the segments weren't long for the long enough for the picture to actually develop. So I, I enjoy these. I thought this one was the weakest of the three, but I did enjoy this and I did get a laugh when John and Jane were calling each other each other's name. Yeah, I got a chuckle. It wasn't uh, I mean, on a on a pretty dreary episode, little the little things will certainly stand out. But uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was fine. Yeah, I got to disagree with you. Uh, I also didn't know this was a paid advertisement. I just thought it was a really bad sketch. Yeah, I don't know. I just didn't get it. It seemed to go on without a joke at all, but knowing it wasn't necessarily designed to be a real sketch, I guess that's a bit more forgivable. And also, Keith, you just answered my question I had written down here was why didn't they show the punchline Polaroid they took during the ad at the end? But Mm -hmm. I guess that I guess that answers that. Those were really, really nice pictures of Jane, though, in the Polaroid. I think it'd be hard to take a picture of like 1970s Jane Curtin that doesn't look nice. Like I yeah. think she, I, she may have been my first crush, and I would have been negative 11 years old when this is happening. My God, <laughs> she's gorgeous. Big Jane Curtin fan over here. Which, once again, this is the second episode that I'm, uh, you know joining you guys on and they've had so little for Jane to do in both episodes. Like even in this one here, I don't even think that she bothered to change costume. They had so little for her to do. We now go to great moments in history. And if you remember, these were really short bits um, from a previous episode, but this one is not short at all. Jane Russell uh, on set filming Howard Hughes's the outlaw and Welch is playing Russell. Hughes says he's in love with her. Now, Hughes was a renowned germaphobe, so he kisses her with a Kleenex between their mouths, and then he turns the Kleenex around and kisses her side. He designed a special brassiere for her, uh, and Garrett comes in as Skip Dixon, Hughes' most trusted Mormon welder, and he has a metal bra with propellers. Russell won't wear it, so Howard puts it on to safety check it. He knocks himself down, 
And Jane, this is how Jane Russell became the girl with the golden gazongas. I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. Didn't even like Aykroyd in this one. Yeah, this was pretty tough to like. I mean, there wasn't really a lot of jokes there. It was very slapsticky. And again, with the tit jokes and yeah, I just, the, the flailing around, you know, you can't just throw a talented guy like Aykroyd to just flail around and expect results. You mean, you mm-hmm. have to have an idea. They had no idea. This sketch had, I guess, it was dreary. It was drab. Not much going on. Uh, it did have three things I enjoyed. One was I did enjoy the uh, the joke you described where he kisses the Kleenex and then Garrett coming in is Skip Dixon. He had so much energy coming in. I did laugh at that. I was excited to see him in the sketch. I feel a little hypocritical because you know, bad-mouthing the writers earlier. But, I mean, Raquel Welsh, she's stunning. She looked amazing. I just wish they gave her more to do other than stand back and watch as Aykroyd did some of the worst Aykroyd stuff I've seen mm. on SNL. I-, I did like the voice Welch was using. It sounded very 40s movie. She was fine. It once again was, like I said, like got the impression she was capable of doing so much more if she had more to work with. Our next bit, uh, Jane Curtin comes out and says that Madeline Kahn will be back on May 8th back you say so what happened on april 10th madeline calm was booked to be the host she came out and did 10 minutes of material and then they threw to a richard Pryor episode and i found that on a uh, from a newspaper clipping on a reddit group so yeah that's what happened there with madeline con things like this you really take for granted how back then like they had to do things to let people know what's coming up in future episodes it's so almost antiquated nowadays with the internet and everything else going on like i would find it weird if I know an episode of Stranger Things halfway through the episode said, hey, tune in next week. We're going to have a goblin show up or whatever. It's it's kind of cute in the way that they had to do it that way. <laughs> so we're at Weekend Update. It starts with Chevy on the phone and he's saying, no, it's just out of batteries. And he then notices the camera's on and he says, I'm Chevy Chase and you can't. A few bits from this, uh, Gerald Ford was criticized for his appearance on a late night television show that is in bad taste, takes cheap shots, and is, uses filthy language. We have a little tech glitch as Chevy Chase gives one of the better jokes. He says 253 murderers and rapists escaped from a prison and residents are advised to answer the door politely. Talks a bit about Timothy Leary being released from prison and uh, Leary's plan is to take a trip somewhere. George Wallace showed his strength by crushing a small child. Another tech glitch as we go to Lorraine Newman as a political analyst talking about undecided voters who don't know. And if one candidate's able to get all these don't knows, they will do quite well. But Newman doesn't know how to get them interested. I really enjoyed that part. Final Days, Nixon's Final Days, the book by Woodward and Bernstein. They don't mean to kick a man when he's down. They mean to kick him, break his thumb, dance on his face with golf shoes, and crack his teeth with a hammer. Um, Then we see Barbara Walters, who had recently left NBC to go to ABC for $5 million. And Garrett Morris interviews Barbara Walters. It's the debut, kind of, of Gilda Radner's Baba Wawa. A uh, impression that Barbara Walters didn't like too much. Highlights for me include uh, crushing a small child and the richness of them doing a joke about how the president was probably criticized for his appearance when I sat here and shat all over the show for having the president on. Thought that was pretty funny, <laughs> and uh, and I thought Lorraine Newman was fine. I don't I don't love the heavy wordplay jokes. Uh, But she did a really good job. But those are my things. I guess my takeaways from the first bit would be uh, the line about, you know, the president being criticized for appearing on a show that takes cheap shots and all this. And it's 10 minutes after the shooting skiers sketch. You know, Barbara Wawa, that bit was okay. If knowing it's the first time, I can see why they'd want to explore it a bit more. Um, And it's also funny to think of like a $5 million contract as being like a humongous contract in television whereas there's performers who make that in one episode now and yeah otherwise the Lorraine Newman bit kind of have to disagree a little bit I found it a bit I don't know it wasn't really my thing I found it could have been delivered a different delivery maybe could have made that a bit funnier in my opinion it's weekend update it's going to be topical so it may not catch all the jokes but you can tell they're well delivered and the audience liked most of them I hate to time travel uh, but Sherry O'Terry does the best Barbara Walters I've ever seen. And that's all I thought about looking at another Barbara Walters. Interesting. That's a controversial statement within the SNL fandom world, Matt. Oh, good. 
We then go to a bisexual minute, and this is Raquel Welch uh, with no disguise. As Gore Vidal talks about how his ancestors planted the first seeds of the country, and yet none of them knew how great their descendant would be. Uh, this is Raquel Welch taking a shot at Vidal, who who wrote the novel Myra Breckenridge, and she's actually wearing the swimsuit from Myra Breckenridge in the bit. Yeah, uh, this wasn't particularly funny to me. I agree. I mean, I don't really have a lot to say about it. I thought it was pretty stupid. Yeah, I don't know what it was. And the audience wasn't really that into it either. So it's not just a time thing that's making it not funny. We then see John Belushi returning as his meteorologist. And he's talking about songs about the weather. Most are harmless, but some spread dangerous information. Such as it never rains in Southern California. Some uh, an expanded bit on don't rain on my parade. He says there's worse things that could happen on a parade. And then he gets into a bit about Toto not getting anything at the Wizard of Oz. He gets all worked up uh, and won't let Chevy stop him. Yeah, this was very similar to one he has done a few episodes ago. He gets all worked up and falls out of a chair. This was not as good as his March comes in like a lion bit, but maybe they're trying something new here. It worked once and it didn't work this time. Yeah, a lot of credit you give SNL for uh, trying something new, which I do. I don't think was the case here. This was the exact same thing done worse. Yeah, I always get intrigued when I see like buttoned up Belushi, and then it just got reduced to fat guy yelling sketch. So I don't know, wasn't for me. And that was it for weekend update. So we now go to John Sebastian singing the theme from Welcome Back, Cotter. He starts off. There's some issues with sound, and it throws him off, and he asks to start again. Everyone keeps going. Everything goes out of sync. He starts singing the second verse, um, takes a brief pause, <laughs> and jumps back on the horse. Now, there are issues with this performance, but uh, I'll talk about them in a sec. How was the performance of the song, and, and I guess the whole set to you guys? Boring. Boring. I don't get it. Who's the target market here? John Denver fans? They probably are the market. <laughs> it's, they are. Uh, they're the ones watching SNL. I, I just didn't think John Denver fans were the ones watching SNL, I guess. But I mean, considering the musical guest, I guess I'd, you know, these proto indigo girls are also watching. Yeah, I did. Uh, I just liked it because in a way, A, I'm familiar with the song, but also I like a singer who just sings. He didn't do any big, crazy vocal bullshit. He just sang in a regular singing voice and in a way, very different from the other musical guest, Phoebe Snow, who is doing all this vocal stuff and if it works or not then that's up to you but i did like just the peeled back a guy singing the song without doing too much vocal bullshit i should also mention that belushi returns as joe cocker to hold sebastian's harmonica while he uses it i think sebastian was hampered by tech issues he's trying to get the audience to sing along and apparently i found this in, a, in an article somewhere the audience was singing along but the monitors and the mics weren't turned on, so he couldn't hear them. And even more importantly, the home audience couldn't hear them. Um, there was just a lot of tech bullshit going on. So I thought, I mean, I like the song. I like John Sebastian. Yeah, it was refreshing to see a mistake like that on live TV. And they just went back, recovered, started again. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's live. That happens. Yeah. And they didn't mask it. You know what I mean? It's That's that's what I thought too, Chili. He didn't do like a big hoedown dance or nothing? No. <laughs> It's about 20 years away. Ah, <laughs> yes. Well, when you're Elvis Costello, you get in a bunch of trouble. That's true. That is true. Yeah. So now we go to a very memorable piece that's talked about quite a bit. It's the Lorne Michaels Beatle offer, and this was written by Michaels himself. So uh, Michaels is at his, his desk, quote-unquote, and he offers the Beatles the opportunity to come on the show to reunite. And he knows there's legal complications and... Uh, Nobody has yet to come up with enough money to bring the Beatles back together. So he offers them on behalf of himself and NBC $3,000 to come on the show and sing three Beatles tunes. He says, she loves you. That's $1,000 right there. They know the words. It's that easy. And they could give Ringo less if they want. He doesn't want to get involved. My favorite part of this sketch is my uh, having read that John and Paul were at an apartment, John's apartment in New York, watching the show and considered it. And then they were like, nah, we'd never make it in time. Other than that, it's classic. It's highlight reel stuff. I love this. This is one of the all-time greats. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's really cool that Lauren's doing it. I love when Lauren does stuff. And uh, thinking about them catching that and, and shooting the shit about it, it's perfect. Yeah, I agree completely. It's There's a reason it's an iconic bit. 
And I think the main thing, like Matt said, the fact it's Lauren doing it, uh, you know, as talented as, you know, Chevy or Ackroyd are, if they did this exact same bit with one of the performers doing it, it wouldn't have had that mystique of, will they actually reunite for this? Like Lauren's delivery was great. It, it made it iconic. It, it's awesome. I love the sketch. Yeah, so there is a fair bit of lore, Matt. You touched on some of it that uh, John and Paul were watching and uh, considered going down. But uh, the versions there, I've always heard that they would have been too late. The other version is they were just too tired and wanted a night off from whatever it was they were doing. In some versions of the story, the staff were somehow alerted that John and Paul might come. And the plan was to tell them after they arrived that they weren't allowed to play because they didn't bring their own instruments. And the thought of Lauren Michaels blocking two of the Beatles from playing together on the show because of union regulations um, was was quite funny. <laughs> Another one was just to bump them for time, um, to have them show up and say, hey, we're here on camera, and then, and then bump them and say, we don't have time, we have to go to this sketch. They couldn't um, do that. There would have been a riot. After yeah, that, I know. After the yeah. fucking Weiss film, there, there would have been a riot. <laughs> Sorry, but almost the ironic part is, I would almost think if John and Paul knew that was the plan, they probably would have tried much harder to get there than thinking they wanted them actually there to perform music. Uh, I'm thinking that, yeah. I'm thinking if they knew there was a joke coming, they uh, they definitely would have gone just to not perform. <laughs> I mean, there's a precedent here where even Paul didn't sing on the Simpsons cameo he made. He made Apu sing the song, so... Mm-hmm. He loves not singing on comedy shows. <laughs> and there's a fictionalized version of this story uh, done in a VH1 TV movie called The Two of Us, where the Beatles, John and Paul, anyway, actually do show up to sing that night. Never seen it, never heard of it till I was doing research for this. But yeah, this is uh, this is absolute 100% five-star highlight reel. We now go to a parody of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest called One Flew Over the Hornet's Nest, where Raquel Welch plays Nurse Ratchet, John Belushi plays R.P. McMurphy, Chevy Chase is Chief Bromfield, Dan Aykroyd plays Billy Bibbit. It's Oscar night, and McMurphy wants to watch the Oscars. This is a big takeoff of the Cuckoo's Nest baseball scene. I, again, wrote, I don't know why there's so many Oscars jokes when it happened a month beforehand, but perhaps this is all uh, reflective of the strike, which delayed some episodes. They do their own Oscars. Fletcher wins for Cuckoo's Nest. She's happy, but McMurphy's angry because he thinks he should have won the Oscar, but he's talking as Jack Nicholson, who did win the Oscar for Cuckoo's Nest. It seems like this was written beforehand and then patchworked afterwards um then they take off his antenna and he's lobotomized i love cuckoo's nest i i love the way these guys have done movie parodies like citizen kane 2 and stuff like that but they absolutely botched this and cuckoo's nest is ripe with stuff you can parody quite well see the simpsons um yeah i thought this was absolutely terrible i was really disappointed with this sketch I don't think you get this on the air today with uh, Dan and uh, Gilda pretending to be uh, mentally handicapped. This is a non-starter. This doesn't leave the fucking one writer's mouth in 2021, in my opinion. I actually found it pretty egregious in that regard. And I know we've talked about this with some other sketches, i.e. the samurai sketch or the deaf person sketch. But this one, they were really playing these people for laughs and i i did not think it was cool yeah this this is awful once again raquel did a fine nurse ratchet didn't have too much to do john belushi is you know a comedy icon but how is he the one person on earth who cannot do a jack nicholson impression it's the easiest impression everybody does it it blows my mind the fact that that was such a bad jack nicholson the chief actually being from india bullshit joke and but just Belushi seemed exhausted by the end of the sketch. I don't know if it was he just knew it wasn't working, you know, for a guy who's known as being like an explosive physical comedian, but that was his bread and butter. There's a huge explosive part in One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest that they had in the sketch where Jack Nicholson attacks Nurse Ratchet. And I think in this Belushi, they kind of put his hands meekly over her neck, shook her like two times, and he looked like he just wanted the sketch to end. Brad Dourif, did he like piss them off or something? Because they must have mentioned three or four times like, oh, and Billy lost. You're not going to yeah. win. It's like, holy shit, leave the guy alone. He's probably not too happy about it. But yeah, this sketch was uh, bullshit. It sucked. And it was long, too. That must be the same year that George Burns won for Sunshine Boys. Because remember, Gilda did the thing with the cigar. Is that what that is? Yeah, that makes okay. sense. Okay. And I was thinking it was a Groucho Marx thing, but I was like, Groucho didn't win anything. No. <laughs> no I think Burns, it was, that makes sense. 
it must have been the George Burns thing. Yeah, I was really disappointed with this. As far as the portrayals of the, the psychiatric patients, I gave it a slight pass because they're parodying the film. But uh, but even that got me choking out a woman on TV. Uh, there's just a lot. You're right, Matt. It would not appear today. So now we go to Gilda's Equal Time. And this was written by Gilda Radner and I think Alan Zweibel. Talks about the burdens that Raquel Welch undergoes as a sex symbol. Gilda thinks it's important that she speaks out for Raquel as a person. Gilda has seen Raquel naked when she snuck into the bathroom and climbed over the toilet seat to peek at her. She notes that she has the same body as Welch. Same parts, but Gilda's needs some regrouping. The intention here was very nice. I just don't think it was executed too well. Gilda got a little bit of a laugh. I think this is the type of a laugh that, like, your mom would have. My big problem with it is I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be funny or serious because I felt both intermittently, and you can't play with me like that in these short little tidbits. Yeah, it was um, it was short. I mean, that's about it. It seemed at the very at the very beginning, like, oh, maybe this is something, you know, Gilda asked to be put in as a bit more serious note about how, you know, People should be treated equally, even if they're good looking, as ridiculous as that sounds. But then once again, they somehow slipped it into somebody went into perv on Raquel. So it kind of went back to being serious with a good message to, oh, it's just back to the same old frat boy horseshit. And Gilda's done something uh, before, if I remember correctly, Keith. Hasn't yes. Gilda all done a serious presentation of this exact same aesthetic? The thing you really liked with, I think it was Candace Bergen about women. Yeah. So no, no wonder I, I feel toyed with. So we now go to a Gary Weiss film. It's Raquel Welch dancing. The dancing was good. The music was good. Raquel Welch looked wonderful. I do not fault Gary Weiss for taking a few days to stand there and, and film a beautiful woman doing a good job dancing. I can totally understand why he took that assignment, but this isn't a Gary Weiss film. Yeah, it was very weird where you're waiting for the joke, and at the end of the bit, I even like rewound a little bit, not just because of just her dancing. Is there going to be a joke here? But I know last time you guys told me about Gary Weiss and how he does have this more offbeat sense of humor in his bits, and I was waiting for something. And once again, it's I'm beating a dead horse, but Raquel, she did what she was supposed to do. She's clearly an amazing talent. And yeah, it was just, it was what it was. It didn't belong in a sketch comedy show. Uh, I didn't I didn't like this week's film. Like I, I got like put in your 25 cents to keep watching vibes. So we then get Phoebe Snow and she talks to Raquel Welsh about a library fundraiser she has coming up with Paul Simon and Jimmy Cliff. She sings Two-Fisted Love, which might be Saturday Night Live's first triple entendre. I <laughs> It's also I also wrote it's the title of a film being shot in the basement of a warehouse two two blocks away. <laughs> I didn't like this. I, I didn't get it. I even looked it up. Like, is this about abuse? Is this about, you know, two-fisted has three very prominent meanings. I didn't like this nearly as much as uh, as the other one. Yeah, I have to agree. It was fine voice, very unique, kind of, she doesn't sound like her, but she, I like the fact she has a very unique voice. Like uh, about 20 years ago, what was it Macy Gray, who had the very distinct, almost ugly voice, but it worked for the way they sang. But last time I kind of criticized her backup singers they didn't show them as much anymore so i will just point out now since i'm not distracted by the backup that phoebe actually looks a lot <laughs> like a database the other nerdy kid on the simpsons who's <laughs> in the episode when they go to uh, shelbyville to get the uh, lemon tree back yeah oh a candy bar wrapper that one. Oh, look a candy bar wrapper <laughs> yeah as soon as i was able to pay attention to poor phoebe i was like oh no <laughs> she looks like database i could see the appeal of like this song and like just her music in general it would be like it'd be fine if you're high or something on a sunday morning and that's about the only time i really get it so then we go from a uh, a, a slow song to another slow song and in this one it's raquel welch singing it ain't necessarily so from porgy and bess terrible placement maybe one song too many but welch did a good job it's too much music on this episode and listen i'm no pro uh, but, you know, I'm sitting here, I have ears, and I love music. I don't think Raquel Welch is a good singer. Why is she singing so fucking much? Am I wrong? Is she a good singer? I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend myself a little bit. Uh, I, I don't think Raquel Welch is a good singer. And I don't know why they got her singing so much. Uh, I actually liked her singing. It's, <laughs> I, they definitely did uh, Phoebe Snow dirty, though. Like, immediately after she's done, she's very unique voice and all that. And very, you know, that just... She has a unique look to her to immediately go from her performance to 
it's almost like they said like, oh, you think that was good? Well, here's a beautiful woman singing too. And it was just, I don't know, it was the weirdest placement of anything I think I've seen yet. The host singing immediately after the musical guest singing. It just, it was very odd placement and it it dragged on and on and on. Scred and Plubus are backstage and they find Favog covered in cobwebs. Uh, The Muppets want advice from the mighty Favog of what to do because they're not booked on the show. They're just puppets and they have no lower half. Favog basically tells them to get in the trunk because puppets don't have feelings. So they open this big trunk and they see Whist, if you remember him, the pot-smoking Muppet from November. And uh, we don't see Whist, but they do. Uh, Queen Puta, though, we do see. She's in the trunk already. And uh, so they all pile in the trunk. The Mighty Favog indicates he plans to ask to host the show. Uh, This wasn't good. Everything the Muppets touch is pretty much poison. Uh, They really, they need to die. There was no sympathy for them from me. It was just glee. Just fucking get rid of this shit. Like, I get the sense that the show is starting to learn itself and learn its identity. And, you know, anybody ask anybody and, like, they'll say the best seasons of X show are probably three and four because you got to find yourself. And part of NBC's Saturday night finding itself is getting rid of shit like this. I get it. You had to do it. You had to try new things. You're a new show. But, you know, I, I should probably credit them for learning quickly, I guess. I think they get it. I think they know we don't like them. Yeah, I was wondering, is this their way of writing the Muppets off where it almost seemed like it was a sketch written by somebody after like Jim, Jim Henson left like in a, a bitter way because they were really uh, mean to the Muppets and then they seemed to just chuck them in the trash. So I don't know if this is their last episode or not. So our last bit, we have a telegram coming in and a Chevy reads it and it's from a 40-year-old war veteran who's dying and asks Raquel Welsh to take her shirt off. Raquel agrees, opens her shirt, and some really bad blues green chroma key and rockets and such. And then as the final music plays, Raquel and Chevy dance, and nobody else comes out for the goodbyes. Pretty weak goodbye, really bad chroma key or blue screen. Um, yeah, not great. I mean, I didn't expect much of an ending out of this episode after having sat through it. Shit, I mean, Chili, sorry that these were the two that you've joined us for. Once again, I'm still trying to think if I've done something to offend Keith or not, but it was a rough it was a rough ending to an overall rough show. It's not always like this. I'm not always like this. So here's our epilogue. The host, Raquel Welsh, she continued working in film, TV, and theater, including a one-woman show in Vegas. She really got into the beauty fitness trend in the 80s. She branched out into selling wigs, jewelry, and skincare. At 81, she is still absolutely beautiful, and she works when she pleases. At this point in time, because of her looks, she was seen as a hideously bad actor, but I don't think that was fair. Uh, Raquel Welch does not come back. Uh, She doesn't host again. John Sebastian continued as a very busy musician. He was a session musician for The Doors, for Gordon Lightfoot, for Timothy Leary, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. It was actually almost Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Sebastian. He continued writing and recording with bands, namely NRBQ and the J-Band, and he's still performing today. In the 80s, he got into producing and hosting television specials and infomercials. He wrote a children's book and some uh, instruction manuals for musicians. He was inducted with Loving Spoonful into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010 and got into doing soundtracks uh, in the 80s for uh, Nelvana and, of course, Care Bears Countdown was one of the theme songs that he wrote. Phoebe Snow we will see again. In the meantime, her third album, Looks Like Snow, was due to be released in June of 76. So we don't get Sebastian again. We don't get Welch again, but we do get Phoebe Snow again. So any uh, any strong feelings there, fellas? I mean, with her magnetism this episode, why wouldn't they have her back? Yeah, I'm not too surprised that Raquel wouldn't come back. I'd almost think that'd be maybe better for her to refuse them than them not ask her. But yeah, the other two musicians, if they came back or if they didn't come back, I wouldn't be too surprised. So let's rate the music. For me, Snow and Sebastian were both good. Snow's song I really enjoyed but really got myself bogged down and wondering what two-fisted love meant to Phoebe Snow. And then I started wondering, should I really be wondering this? John Sebastian, he got tripped up at the beginning, but he recovered. It's really too bad. His performance would have been a lot better if the tech was good and the, the audience mics were turned on. Neither one of them are up my alley, typically, for what I'd normally listen to. Uh, she had a very unique voice, whereas his was much more straightforward. And I could see how people would be fans of both. It's just not me. Terrible, terrible music for me this week. I didn't enjoy a single second of any of these musical performances. 
except for thinking of Orlando and Chris Christopherson. Talk about the host. I thought her singing was good, her dancing was good, and she wasn't overly offensive in anything. There was no real monologue. I liked her voice in the as Jane Russell. I liked her. Uh, I liked her nurse Ratchet, but nothing she did was good as a whole as far as the comedy side of things none of the sketches were great a few of them were quite bad this wasn't a good turn for raquel welch it wasn't a good episode i agree completely uh, i didn't think i thought she was misused she seemed enthusiastic to be there and they did nothing with her but i i mean i disagree about the singing i don't think raquel welch should be out there singing on national television I think for me, the singing is, you know, it's a, it's split down the middle for me as far as the singing goes. Like, she does sing well. I think she has a good voice, but it's not what she's known for. She's a good, me and Matt will disagree. I say she's a good singer, but I think for a lot of hosts who are not known for comedy, I give them much more points for the gusto they bring into it rather than the jokes they're given to deliver. Because really, um, I said this uh, last time I guested with you guys, was that they didn't give the female host much to work with Raquel. They asked her to look pretty. She looked pretty. They asked her to dance. She danced and she did everything with enthusiasm. Wasn't great, but I don't think she's to blame for. So, um, what was your worst bit fellas? The cuckoo's nest for me. I really thought it was pretty egregious that I don't think it would make it on the air at all today. And it went on way too long on top of everything. But, uh, otherwise I, I think too many people would find it offensive I mean, I found it a little offensive, but I mean, I'm, I'm pretty thick-skinned about this kind of stuff. But I can just imagine what the what the people of today, not that I'm not one of the people of today. Anyway, you know what I mean? I'm old. Uh, young people would be furious with this. I initially was thinking uh, Belushi and Jane doing the Polaroid commercial back and forth. But knowing that's a commercial, I'll actually take that off because that's not, you know, the intention was to show how good the pictures were and that did that. So I'm going to have to agree. In that case, I'm giving the worst bit to the Cuckoo's Nest parody. It wasn't particularly funny. went on forever. And Belushi not being able to do a Jack Nicholson impression is unforgivable. I'm going with the Claudine Langer invitational thing. Um, that was too fresh. Someone actually died. And we were never sure. There's still debate on if it was an accident or not. Even if it wasn't an accident, a guy was dead. And they were making light of it on national television. I didn't like the sketch before I researched it. And once I looked into it, I was just disgusted by this. And I'm, I'm actually glad they got a cease and desist on this one. Maybe, maybe it taught them a lesson. If not the performers themselves, maybe somebody in the executive level was like, okay, we can't have too much more of this shit. They will sneak it back in but uh this was a well-deserved knuckle wrap i think the best for you fellas i'll jump right in and say the lord michaels offering the beatles three thousand dollars it was it didn't overstay its welcome it was funny it was well delivered and it has the mythic backstory behind it so no i would give that one by far the best bit and what was an otherwise very drab night Agree completely on uh, that being the best of the night. Classics are classics for a reason. Uh, this was cool. It was different. It was Lorne. There was nothing like it on the episode. One of my favorites of the season. Couldn't agree more, fellas. This was uh, this was this is classic, and it has every right to be. The only thing that came close is I really like Lorraine Newman's analysis of the don't knows, but even that is a, is a world away from the Beatles offer. Star of the night, Chili. I'm going to give it to Lauren uh, Michaels for his bit, but otherwise, yeah, I I would have given it to Raquel. Uh, Lauren deserves it for me. I mean, of course, I disagree with Chili. I wouldn't have given Raquel anything except for thanks for coming out. I'm sorry these fucking ass writers didn't have anything for you to do. It's not her fault uh, because I really do get the impression that she seemed game. But goddamn, Lauren, that Lauren segment is iconic and coming out of the episode, that, that's where my mind is. That's what I'm thinking about. That's what you're talking about the next day. It's the best one for me. Well, what do you know? We got another sweep here. I really hate to break. This is only the third time I've broken from the uh, not ready for primetime players themselves, but Michael's absolutely deserves this one um it was a rose between many 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 thorns tonight i do like how different you guys feel about raquel welch though overall this episode uh this might have worked a lot better early in the show when it was more of a variety show but it's a break from what we're used to and expecting especially at this point found chevy too pervy and update was weak Garrett and Lorraine were too scarce. Jane and Aykroyd were around, but didn't do anything to blow anyone's mind. Belushi's cocker was good, but we didn't need to see him twice. I cannot understand how they could botch a parody of Cuckoo's Nest. For pure comedy, there just wasn't much here. But this episode does give us the Beatles pitch. 
Uh, the tech was obviously off. There were a couple of flubs in update. Whatever was going on with John Sebastian's set was terrible. And the blue screen business. They kind of found their format and they found their voice and they found what they do. But in this episode, they sort of threw it all away and went back to like episode three. It was very disappointing. My score, I'm giving it a four. And this is actually the worst episode I've seen so far. Uh, I also, Keith, give it a four, actually. I thought the music was terrible. The host was misused. The writers were lazy. Uh, Lauren really saved the show. And a couple of chuckles otherwise kept it from being a complete disaster. Four to ten for me. I'm giving it a three out of a ten. Uh, there's just not much to it. And even the Beatles pitch, that's what got it probably about as high as it did, actually. Uh, you just mentioned something, key that made me think about how I probably why I might enjoy the show is because I still not watching as many as you guys have. I haven't seen how much they found themselves. So I still think of it as being the early variety show, like you mentioned. And in that case, it would have been a better variety show than an episode of SNL. Excellent. So we have a four, a four and a three. That gives us an average of a 3.6, and we have a new champion for a shittiest episode to date. Two two really low ones in a row from you, Chili. Uh, <laughs> um, and the IMDb ranked this one, gives this one a 6.7, which, uh, let's see, makes it the 20th uh, out of 24 best episode of the first season. How was our exchange rate? 2.1 away. So I'd like to take the opportunity again to thank Chili for, for sitting through a another dreadful episode. Uh, I can't say dreadful, but for season one, a, a not-so-great episode um, of Saturday Night Live. That's two in a row, and hopefully we'll, we'll hook you up with a good one next time, buddy. Yeah, uh, quote, thanks for having me in for another episode uh, <laughs> that I rank less than a five out of ten. <laughs> but I, I still love doing it anytime. Yeah, you're paying your dues, bud. Our next episode is Madeline Kahn hosting and Carly Simon as the musical guest. You won't be with us, Chili, but what does that lineup sound like to you? Yeah, it sounds much more promising. Madeline Kahn, very funny comedic actress. This should be right up her alley. And I don't know the history, but it sounds like Carly Simon, her making these appearances is pretty rare at that point based on Mm -hmm. this episode. So it should be a good one. Matt? I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm excited for it because I, the, the show did a segment to sell it with Jane Curtin, for goodness sake. I'm not the biggest Carly Simon person uh, by any means. Uh, she's sort of like 70s Taylor Swift, but I'm curious. I'm interested. Well, folks, until then, we'll be locking ourselves in a trunk and putting on our finest denim leisure suits as we sing back up for Phoebe Snow here in SNL. Hell.